If you're vulnerable to psychic damage from roguish language, stay away from these gibbering mouths. But if you intend on listening to this podcast about enriching your fantastical group hallucinations, you're too far gone already. Your next game is going to be crawling with criminal intent, and here is why. In this episode, we find some answers to how do you create an antagonist that challenges the players to choose a side? And what are some inspirations for a corrupted zealot that's going to add some flavor and richness to our antagonist like he's a fine meal? And how do we design an evil plot for a menacing villain for our party to uncover. Welcome to the Hook and Chance podcast. I'm Jordan. And I'm his brother, Travis. So writing baddies is tough. Antagonists, villains, like we always have this deep desire to make them the best that they can possibly be. But how do? It's a tricky question to answer because, I mean, you kind of have to start at what kind of villain do you want? Because, for instance... Comic book villains, like the Lex Luthers of the world, exist because folks are on a schedule to get the next issue out. So their plans are really not that complex. You (laughs) block out the sun. (laughs) Because money. Yeah, you just like, I want money. Yeah. (laughs) Their, Their motivations are really simple because they have to be because we've got a tight deadline. And for the most part, you want to be focusing on the hero's antics, not really the villains as much. So, you know, whip up a simple villain plan and run with that. Right. And to be honest, I don't know that there is anything particularly wrong with this kind of approach. Because these villains are created because people are on deadlines. Because there's not a lot of time to build and and play out this incredibly rich, deep tapestry of evil. So if you're playing in a game that's short on time, this is a valid approach. Oh, completely. Like, it's it's still very fun to overcome basic evil. Absolutely. But uh, you wouldn't really need an episode about that. So in this one, we're chatting more about how to how to add that depth and richness and how to make them feel like an actual villain that's got some things that make them maybe redeemable, but reasons that they're evil. Right, and in our last episode, we chatted about how monsters are great because they challenge those physical player abilities, their dexterity, their strength, their fortitude, all of these kinds of things that allow the players to have an uncomplicated life or death victory over one particular foe. That's what monsters are great at doing. But maybe your players get hungry for something a bit more nuanced, and that's where a great antagonist really comes in. And developing a good one in our eyes means that you could provide a a great physical challenge in the form of like that final battle or conflict with them, but they're going to provide some interesting role play, some character driven choices for the players to make. They're going to provide like moral, philosophical or intellectual challenges rather than just physical ones. And the reason we're talking about this at all, especially in the context of like writing great villains is that often the kind of 
feedback or suggestions or advice that you find when you're asking this kind of question. How do I make a great antagonist? You know, the absolute most common bit of advice is make sure that your villain sees themselves as the hero of the story. And then the rest of the advice that's out there is usually focused on writing advice. So if you're trying to write a novel or you're trying to write a pilot for a TV show or something like that, writing a good antagonist for a tabletop game is a way different experience. It calls for a way different skill set than the average advice that you might see out there because it's designed to be interacted with. And that's really kind of what we want to focus on today. Right. You can't just write some witty one-liners and call it a day because you're going to have to understand how this character thinks and operates in order to have a conversation with the party. And how to play them off the characters, the people that are sitting at the table, which is often an experience that you don't get when you're just sitting down to write a villain. You're not having to think about how is this villain going to be reflected and interpreted by every single person at the table, by every viewer. To me, this is the biggest opportunity when it comes to planning for some kind of TTRPG session, is that this is a huge opportunity and a borderline superpower, if you can get good at it, is how do I write a villain that will really challenge not only the player character sitting at the table, but the person playing that character And this is an experience that is unique to just this hobby. Where do you get to see that reflected back in an instant? And it truly does take us a while to sit down and think through this and do it right. The other challenge is just that there are so many villains out there that you could potentially just rip straight from the book, even TTRPG books. Hey, run this villain. But that's also kind of a challenge for us because... You know, in your and I experience, Jord, we have definitely experienced this thing where you'd lay down this super cool villain that comes straight out of some adventure book. And then we look at that villain and none of the players seem to give a shit. You know, they go after them, maybe because they're obviously the villain. (laughs) I remember specifically running a adventure module that was about money and wealth and the villains were presented in a way that they were taking all the money and wealth for themselves. Oh no. And then I didn't really convey that well enough in the session zero. And I had all these characters sitting at the table that were completely unmotivated by money in any way, shape or form. (laughs) (laughs) And that's when I realized I did a fuck up. So there is a huge benefit to sitting down and thinking through your antagonist and not just thinking through who they are and what their motivations are, but how to play them off of each one of the player characters at the table. So today, that's what we're going to try to do. To do that, we're going to look at the player characters that we have for this adventure that we're doing throughout the season, going to determine what themes or threads we want to tug on based on those characters, and we'll find some inspirations for our villain to borrow some fabulous ideas from, and use our NPC guide to put it all together. At the very end, we're even going to dabble with 
our mystery building system to make sure that this villain's going to have, you know, a dastardly plot for the party to uncover. You know, I'm really glad that we're finally at this place where we can use all of these different systems that we've been building for the last three plus years. <laughs> it's finally, it seems like a real long game. Like if I were to go back in time and think about doing this again, I might find a shorter route been a weird weaving journey for we, sure we are nowhere near the kind of villainous plotting uh you know masterminds that we have to build today <laughs> very true <laughs> in a decade you will see the kind of villainy that i have wrought <laughs> our plans will finally come together into something usable but like you said jordan we have to start at our player characters so if you've been following along in this season, we've already kind of discussed these folks and we had our patrons help us build some initial characters that kind of represent the typical that most parties will end up playing. And we ended up with Weld, Squib, and Eden. And Weld wants redemption for their own flawed past. So with this villain we're building, can we present the chance for them to be redeemed? So Ooh. that, you know, Weld has to think about that. Does everyone deserve redemption or only a certain kind of shithead? Yeah. And does killing the villain actually redeem Weld at all? Right. Then with Squib, we've got a character that's abandoned their family and the traditions that they grew up with and even the responsibility that they should have taken on in the eyes of that family to become this kind of adventurer. Right. So we've kind of got this storyline that is all about responsibility and family and connection and groups. And so there's a lot that we can explore within this. And for some of the NPCs that we've created, this villain is all the family that our NPC has. We've made a child NPC that's going to be going along on the adventure with the party. And one of the villain's problems with the world at large is that it's very irresponsible. We'll get into that a little bit later, but that's definitely something that plays off of Squib. And then, of course, with Eden, you've got a character that sees everything in black and white, good and evil. So can we play with Eden's sense of morality and their blind faith and interpretation to their deity? This is that, like, you know, super heroic kind of paladin sort. And that child NPC that you were just referencing very much has blind faith in the villain. So it's kind of similar in that sense. We want to force Eden into a state where they're right up against the wall, needing to start recognizing the grays of the world rather than just like, this is good, this is bad. Yeah. So to do all of this, we're going to jump to the extra dimensional gateway. This is the extra dimensional gateway where strange yet familiar alternate realities can be summoned forth when help is needed. So we wanted to reflect on some of the villains from movies that we love, movies and games that we think were written so beautifully in the sense that we hate them so much. They're <laughs> terrible people that we definitely would never want to come face to face with. And some of these villains were just the perfect concoction of terrifying, you know, kind of insidious, uh, just intimidating and fucking punchable. Like you really, <laughs> you just 
love to hate them. You love to despise their very existence. Well, to your point about Punchable, these villains in particular, I think, scare me more than that. Like, I see Joffrey as Punchable. Right. I see these guys as like, I want to avoid them at all costs because they're smart. They're frightening. Like, they could take me down in a moment. Right. (laughs) Right. Fair enough. (laughs) Yeah. Lock you in a room with Joffrey Baratheon, and that's probably something that you want. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So the first one, the inspiration that we want to try to draw from is from Quentin Tarantino's Incredible and Glorious Bastards, uh, Hans Landa. And just another note before we dive too deep. If you don't know these characters or these movies, we're not going to focus on like the little nitty gritty details. We're not right. going to try and spoil things. We're just talking about a couple of the things we like. So stick around. We're not going to we're not going to get too boring for you. Yeah. And no spoilers here, really. So Hans Landa, some of the things that I see that he has in common with the direction we're going with this villain is his contradictory nature. Like, I really like how he is so polite and patient, well-mannered and courteous on the surface, but obviously it's just a facade for the ruthless monster that he is underneath that. Right, because most of the time that you see Hans in Inglorious Bastards, he is, like you said, very well in, put together, but he's always in public. And then the moment that he's in private you get to see the vicious psychopath that he actually is. Yeah. And even in public, he is tearing people apart psychologically in the most polite fashion. Yeah. And that's why it's kind of terrifying. He's also extremely disciplined. He's very meticulous almost. I think back to the very first scene where he's kind of unpacking his pipe. I feel like that has like an element it conveys to our party that they are well put together, like they've got everything planned. Yeah. And so it's going to always keep the party on the back foot if we can somehow convey that in our villain. And that discipline, I think, carries over to aspects of his intelligence, like his depth of knowledge about language, which comes out in terrifying ways in the movie, too. Right. The second bit of inspiration... Ross Agul. Oh, that's how you're going to pronounce it on me, all fancy. From Batman. His middle name's not Al? <laughs> I thought it was R- Ross Al Ghul. <laughs> I don't, I don't think, I think that's not a middle name. <laughs> I don't. You can call me Al. <laughs> all right. So one of the things that we definitely want to borrow from this character is that the ends justify the means. You know, throughout the entirety of his history as a Batman villain, he's always been, I mean, it, you might be familiar with the movie version of him played by, who was that? Taken. <laughs> My brain is melting because I can't think of his name right now. <laughs> Neeson of the Liam. Liam Neeson. Yes. Thank you. Liam Neeson did a great job playing this character, but if you've ever read any of the Batman comics, like this is nothing new. Whatever that plot was to take down Gotham Like, that was actually kind of small potatoes for this character historically, because he's always been about, like, wiping out most of humanity. (laughs) He's always been like, yeah, let the world restart from fresh. Right. And that kind of concept is actually what I want to borrow. Like, ends justify the means. 
we're going to demolish an entire civilization because it's gotten a little, you know, unrestrained. In the long run, this will be better. So it doesn't matter how bad things get now. Yeah. In the long run, I see a vision for the future that is glorious. Like it's a great vision of peace and prosperity and happiness. And then as soon as they tell you how they're going to get there, you're just like, oh, shit. Wait a sec. You mean we have to wipe out everybody? (laughs) So he also believes himself to be a very good mentor and leader. Like you wouldn't set your sights on this goal unless you kind of saw yourself as a pretty grand person to follow. And not only does he believe that about himself, but like practically... He is a good mentor. Right. Like in the movie, he's a good mentor to Batman. He teaches him a lot of skills and philosophies that he's gained throughout his life. And in the comics, he's been a mentor. He's been the only one that can match Batman or like he's written that way, at least. Yeah. He's the only one that can match him in his wits. Right. And like Batman kind of respects him. He seems to be the only villain that Batman doesn't mind just like wailing on where he's just like (laughs) you're good like there's a weird mutual respect there that i think is kind of interesting to play up right that's very much not there with like the joker like batman wants to just beat the shit out of the joker yeah (laughs) yeah you can't you can't match wits with the joker he's too chaotic and then of course i like the mystery element of raz al ghul as a villain he is a mentor figure until right until you know uh oh <laughs> oh you want to kill everybody well never mind let's i'm going to peace out right and since he's so intelligent he is not the kind that reveals his plans so there is always a mystery it's not like the villain shows up and is like haha let me tell you let me grandstand for a little bit while i tell you my entire plan it's never clear until the very moment that it's going to happen and that is so juicy for tension that I feel like we need to figure out how to borrow some of that. And then we have a different kind of villain, Joseph Seed, which, you know, unless you've played Far Cry 5, you might not be deeply familiar with this villain, but he's basically a religious cult leader that's villainy has made very apparent from the very start. This is one that I would love to figure out how to walk this very fine line between like, very on the surface, oh, this guy's batshit. And also, I understand how he has so many followers. Like, I understand why people would go along with his plan. The difference here being that we're not necessarily crafting a massive cult following for this villain, but we still want him to have that charismatic energy about him. The other thing that I think would be worth borrowing from Joseph Seed is the entire time. Like, you can kind of see his plan on the surface his conviction towards his goal is kind of shocking and a little bit upsetting because the entire time you have this like awareness of how they're going about getting what they want but you can also see from a distance that his actions come from a place of genuine care for people And their lives, like it is messed up right? when you play that game and you're just like, damn it, you're doing heinous things. But I can see that it's not because you're like, you're never positioned as crazy. You're never, 
you know, you're not just villainous, you're not just murderous, but you're all of those things because you want to genuinely help people. The people that are in your direct care. Yeah, right. And you're just like, oh no. Yeah. This is super bad. That leans kind of into that theme of family and, and parents that Squibs got going on. Yeah. So we got a lot to draw from here. Now you kind of get where we're hoping to go with this villain. Let's see if we can actually stick the landing and get there. Creep into the conspirators' conclave, the treacherous birthplace of bitter rivals, tenuous allies, devious plots, and despicable deeds. Before we dive in, let's do a quick concept overview for the setting and the adventure so far. We got an ancient order that's based out of a temple that's dedicated themselves to maintaining the healing nature of the land, which comes in the form of magic little worms. And then you have this community that is in essence uh, a fantasy beach town that is formed around the temple to take advantage of the healing waters that this wonderful group of monks has cared for for centuries. Uh, the town, I would say, is a little bit on the newer side. They are very carefree, like I said, kind of beach town vibes. Yeah, ramshackle, they'll be all right kind of energy. Then the adventure itself, we're thinking the temple has been sealed off, the healing has begun to dry up, the land is dying, somebody has to do something. Basically, get inside the temple. Who has... Who has sealed? Who would be so awful as to seal off the temple and start to dry up all of the healing energies? What kind of monster would do that? Yeah. Then throughout the adventure, the party is also going to be shepherding this child NPC that is the basically the direct ward of the villain. The villain being the ruler of the temple that is going bad because he's tired of the town kind of soaking up the healing energy and turning it into good vibes. <laughs> we are really just converting the healing energy into party towns. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> wow. Okay. This NPC is going to be super helpful because it's going to allow us to convey all of these hints and ideas throughout this adventure. They're going to be the ones that essentially interpret it. And it's going to be up to our party or us as GMs to convince the party of these things so that they take this at face value. All of these experiences that this NPC has had, that their father figure is a kind, benevolent, wonderful person, and to them, they have been. But of course, this is all done so that we can throw the party off the trail and have a grand time getting them to question who the villain really is. So before we get into all that mystery building stuff, let's try to clarify our villain a little bit. So if we had a few core traits to play from, I'd say one of them would be paternal. Like you were just saying, he's been a great father figure right up until his breaking point and still shows a ton of these fatherly qualities to those under his care. He's also been extremely disciplined. So he's the hardest working despite his age. And he calls all of the other monks to try to meet his level of commitment to their cause. He's an inspiration. But those are both kind of good. So we got to make him deeply manipulative. He understands how people work. 
He uses that to his full advantage to get what he wants out of his temple and the town. His outward persona is super easy to like and respect, but underneath, he's turning into a terrible, terrible monster that wants to kill everybody. So we definitely need to start this adventure off in town where the party can experience the town, they can experience the temple, or at least what is happening to the town, all of these kinds of effects, to really make sure that we sell the villainy of this whole plan. Like, this town is hurting right now. It used to be great, and let us tell you, but in its current state, it needs to really not be very good. Yeah, and we want the party to assume that this leader villain is a good guy that's been killed or captured until the very end. Right. This is a rescue mission because the temple is sealed off and the people that want you to go and fix this are worried for this man's safety. He's trapped in there somewhere or that he's been taken hostage and who knows what the hell has happened, but he's missing. And so the, the introduction of this character is really off screen. Like they're not going to actually meet him but that kid's sidekick is going to be talking them up and telling them all about their father figure. And I think, this is just my intuition, but I think that we can play that off as like, the party is becoming their parental figures, but right. they're still referencing their old ones. So it's more about that than it is about GM trying to present this virtuous figure that's obviously the villain. I love this because it does two things. It, it achieves that goal of providing context for the villain that throws them off the trail initially, but also it sets the players up in a place where if they do want to mentor this NPC, they're going to have to try to embody some of these ideals. Like they can't be the kind of unpredictable murder hobos that parties <laughs> would typically, uh, you know, fall into that rut. They're going to have to, if they have this NPC, it's, seeing everything that they're saying and doing it is witness to their actions so therefore we're kind of forcing our party to behave themselves in very subtle ways and also through those stories that this npc is telling um to kind of guide their actions and it's going to be so fun when we do introduce the villain at the end we find out that they've been the bad guy the whole time but that kid is still hoping for the best like I can see playing this kid as the GM as wanting to walk right up and like, hey, dad, what's right. going on? But the party is going to have to like hold them back and be like, this is a fight against him now, kid. Sorry. Sorry to be the one to break this to you. Oh, this is going to be such a shit show of a situation when we finally drop that one on there. Because, yeah, you've got this villain, you've got this kid, you've got the party. The party now has to decide how they're going to go down in this fight. Are they going to just nuke the villain from <laughs> orbit like they typically do with the monsters? No, they're going to have to start pulling their punches. But how far? How far do they go with it? While they're getting no punches pulled towards them, but the villain is still trying to avoid the the kid and like, oh, it's just such yeah. a messy fight. And I'm so excited for it. Like if the wizard just throws fireball at the villain, then the kid starts coming up and trying to beat the shit out of the wizard. Like, yeah. stop. <laughs> <laughs> Don't hurt my dad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This whole, you know, culmination of all of this has really been my North Star. How do we make this the messiest 
fight <laughs> yeah. that we can possibly <laughs> conjure. It's going to be a ton of fun. Let's get back to what we're building, though. We need a villain. So what is this villain's appearance going to be like? Well, if we're borrowing from all of these inspirations, like they're all very well put together. That is something that all three of them share. Yeah. Is, you know, they're really well groomed. They have almost a, a uniform that they're known for, <laughs> some in literal cases. Yeah. Uh, that kind of both commands respect and strikes fear. I don't know how we're going to make a monk and monks clothes that kind of do both. Hmm. I mean, they are caretakers. So I could see an element of like, you know, very utilitarian. You know, we're not thinking monks in flowy right. white robes. We're thinking utilitarian. So pockets, gloves, tools of the trade of keeping the temple in pristine tip-top order, despite the fact that there's a bunch of shitheads running around wrecking it all the time. Right, more of like a super clean, put together, professional construction worker. Yeah, or like a groundskeeper. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think when the party finally does meet him, he's going to have like pretty dark circles, sunken eyes. Like he's been up for a few days putting all this together and and doing his dastardly deeds. And who knows how long he's been locked in here? Yeah, like if all of the healing energy has kind of started to dry up around here, then. Yeah, we've got some problems. This guy hasn't seen the sun in a little while. He's been by himself. He's a little bit more <laughs> nutty than he usually is. Yeah, a little more fervently talking about his goals. Like, I'm so close. It's coming to fruition. Well, and what the other thing that I really like with that is that it's not one of those things that you can go back on, really. Like, you've done so much damage. This character knows that as soon as they closed the doors to the temple, there was one way that this ended, with them seeing their plan through to fruition. Yeah. For who they are, they're now in a kind of stressed out state. So I can see a lot of physical affectations about, like, maintaining their appearance. Yeah. They're kind of like pulling down their cuffs, putting a comb through their hair, whatever you can imagine for that effect. Right. They're trying to keep it together despite the circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. Almost nervous ticks. We've talked about it in bits and pieces, but let's kind of clarify this character's backstory and what brought them to this point. Right. So they are keepers of the temple. They've been doing this for generations. This person is one in a long line that has come before them. It just so happens that it's gotten kind of the worst it's ever been during their tenure as the leader of this order of monks, of which there is only three to four left really yeah which has been putting just increasing amounts of pressure on all of them they've been cleaning up the messes of everybody in town but there's been very little reward for this we're thinking we needed something that would almost be understandable why would they start and enact this plan you know what would be the moment what pushed them would... over the edge yeah yeah so we're thinking that this town isn't full of just horrible people they are just chill and they like to party and they love kind of the laid-back lifestyle that this temple offers them because they're always healed they're always helped they can get drunk and just hop in the pool and recover so what if this town to show their appreciation once a year honors them in air quotes by having a 
yearly holiday. Except that that yearly holiday, much like some of our modern holidays <laughs> like St. Patrick's Day, started as one thing and has been kind of manipulated over the years to become something entirely different. More or less noble origins, but have just turned into an excuse to party. Yeah. <laughs> Where this town has those general chill beach town vibes on this one special day a year, it turns into Fort Lauderdale on <laughs> spring break kind of vibes where they go extra hard. Which is always this villain's least favorite day of the year. <laughs> Except that it's in their honor. Yeah. They're honoring them. Oh my God, what a slap in the face. One day on this most recent one, uh, while skimming some barf out of the pools. <laughs> like the villain is? Yeah. The leader is yeah. like trying to keep just it Just like clean. got the pool skimmer and is just like, uh <laughs> Gross. Uh, yeah, we're thinking a group of 10 particularly raucous partiers think that the monks deserve to relax every once in a while and maybe in their drunken state thought that they could encourage this by picking the monk up against their wishes and carrying him to the pool's edge and tossing him in. Just like, for someone that's so proper and put together, just the most embarrassing moment. This happens to make villains in the real world. Like, I could see, you know, this scrawny kid at the summer vacation <laughs> pool spot getting bullied and tossed into the pool. This is believable almost. Like yeah. I would I would consider villainy if this happened to me. <laughs> It'd be that easy to push you over the edge, eh, Travis? Oh, I'm pushing uh, in a pool and Yeah, we've established that I'm hanging by a thread already. So cool, 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 cool. Not worried. <laughs> <laughs> the other monks didn't see this happen. So it's kind of just this like little burden that he's carrying around. Right. Yeah, you wouldn't Festering. share that yeah. with the rest. Because <laughs> you would be afraid, first of all, that it would undermine your leadership, if nothing else. Right. This would absolutely secure their commitment. You know, they've probably been percolating on this plan for years. They've never really liked the town. They inherited it from the last person that loved it or something like that. So they've maybe always been kind of misaligned with how this town has been going about it. And now, now that they're leader and they've been leader for probably a few decades, they're just sick and tired of this shit. And they're finally gotten pushed over the edge, literally in yeah. this case. And next we have to talk about this character's problem, which we've just kind of explained, but if you're familiar with the way that we design NPCs, which we're loosely following in this conversation, we have this chunk where we say, what's the problem that they have that the party could help them with? The main difference between antagonists and any other NPCs is that the antagonist is already busy solving their own problem, which the party is actually going to interfere with. So I think we've made it pretty crystal clear in this conversation that this villain's problem is the town abusing the healing energies and they're they're putting together a plan that's going to stop that for good. Right. So in doing so, what they're doing is they're restricting access. They're gathering up all of these healing slugs that we've established are what caused the healing energies in this place. And they're going to restrict them and they're going to choke out the town until Finally, the town either dies or leaves one or the other until the temple is essentially abandoned 
and then they will dole out this healing energy as they see fit. Perfectly villainous. <laughs> Which kind of leaves us with a great arc that the players can choose to either help or hinder. We've discussed arcs in previous episodes, but here we've got, you know, somebody that started high, morally high, and they've had a fall arc and they could potentially go so far down if left unchecked. This is a moral depravity pitfall, you know, off a goddamn cliff. And now they can either have a redemption arc if the party so chooses to try to pull them out of it with the help of this child NPC, or maybe Bomb the party... Him. What? <laughs> Bomb him? Well, that's the other outcome, right? Oh, <laughs> yes, party, of course. <laughs> party nukes him off the face of the earth. <laughs> or the party just nukes him, kills the guy, doesn't ever let them redeem themselves because they're past redemption, maybe. But the nice part about designing NPCs like this is that we don't care what the outcome really is. It's up to the party to see themselves, see their own problems reflected, and that's what we're really trying to do is, is give them the opportunity to make that choice. And then giving us the directions to kind of run with those choices. So now that we've got our heads wrapped around the character of this villain, uh, they need a plan that the party's going to interfere with. We need to kind of like define it a little bit. So we usually like to do kind of like a basic four-step plan just to keep ourselves straight when we're talking about a villain's plan. And the party usually interferes in step two. That just leads us to the best kind of adventure arc that we can get. Right. So step one in this situation, the villain has to collect a large amount of healing slugs. They need to be left alone to do that. So in step two they seal off the temple so that they won't be disturbed. This is the crime that the players are investigating. It's why that they're starting their adventure in the first place. Step three, they're going to release a beast that has consumed all of the slugs in town. That causes all of the water to lose all of its healing properties. And the final step is to conduct a ritual that infuses him with the healing power of that pile of slugs he collected so that all requests and uses of the power have to go through him. He gets to control this resource rather than the rampant, unchecked abuse of it. But here's the thing. Here's the challenge in all of this. If we don't give the players anyone else to suspect, I'm a little bit worried that they're going to arrive at the conclusion that it was the leader monk the entire time. 100%. So we're going to probably need to use a bit of a mystery structure so if you're following along with this season when we're done we will have each piece of this like fine-tuned and detailed out so that you can read it if you ever want to reference it but right now we just want to kind of get an overview of the suspects that are going to be a part of this mystery that the party is going to want to put in the spotlight along the way we need the party to have other suspects to draw their attention away and so really what we need to do is just make three quick NPCs that during the explanation of the challenge and the problem that we have somebody to throw the party towards that isn't this leader monk. And this specific mystery is a little bit unique because normally the structure would be the party goes after a suspect because they want to stop the crimes. 
and then they rule out that suspect, meaning they have to go on to the next one. The goal of this mystery isn't necessarily identifying the villain, it's getting to the villain. Right. No matter who's there at the end is kind of unimportant until they're there. So really, these suspects are just for the party to kind of mull over as they go through the adventure. And we can look at probably dropping in some clues along the way so that the party has the ability to rule out some of these NPCs. We'll have to look at that when we actually get into the depths of this, but we do need somebody in mind so that we can lay this out at the very beginning of the adventure and say, I don't know, it's probably one of these people that has sealed off the temple. I can't believe somebody would do that. So we have to come up with some equally shitty people (laughs) to direct the party towards. Now, I'll specify, could be equally shitty. Right. Could be good. Could be fine. Yeah. I think one of the early ideas that came to my mind was kind of a shitty tavern owner, because we've talked in the past in some of the other episodes that we want this like unofficial spokesperson for the town that's just a chill dude. He's like nice. He's really about living free and easy in this wonderful town that he so much loves and appreciates and appreciates the temple's work. However, there is always a counterpoint to that. And that's where my mind went to this like VIP tavern owner, because for every single person that is kind of live and let live around this chill beach town, there's going to be somebody that's going to try to exploit that. And so I'm thinking there's a person that is running a service where they go and they collect VIPs. And those VIPs probably don't want the same experience as the rest of the townsfolk. And so they have a force of bodyguards that help create a VIP experience in this temple that grants access to all. So they could maybe want to step this up a notch. What if they somehow forced out the rest of the town and created a VIP experience and charged top dollar for access to the healing waters? What a dastardly plan. (laughs) So like the motivation here is... The most money they can get out of this situation. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They've been hiring bodyguards to like clear the partiers out of one section of the pool so that the king of the (laughs) next town over the next region can come and bathe his weary feet. You're buying the package when you come to this town. You want everything done for you. Right. The velvet rope kind of experience. Yeah, totally. An idea that I thought was rather fun, kind of in a totally different vein, is a traveling healer that has come to town, which in itself, I think, is kind of odd. Their service is healing, but they've come to a place where nobody needs that. Right. Okay, sure. Maybe they're just curious. Maybe they are just, you know, they're studying the healing nature of these slugs. Yeah, well, I mean, that's what I would think as a party member is like, this is peculiar (laughs) right and if somebody is worthy of some suspicion it's probably this person and so this is kind of that like if they were the villain maybe they're trying to unlock some kind of immortality situation for themselves right like they know that there's potential here at least that's what the party would suspect some ability to maybe bottle up these healing energies and sell them on the road kind of thing i think i like the idea of that first suspect being financially motivated And this character is like motivated more by that desire for unlimited health. 
Right. Yeah, I dig that. And then to throw in a third concept, I think you've got a character that already is extremely wealthy. So again, that's not their motivation, but maybe there's some kind of like independent supporter of arts and culture in this town. Like this town has a lot more extra time on their hands than other towns because their basic needs are provided for them. So yeah, is this person putting on events and, you know, trying to, to add more to this town than just that party vibe? And then I think a third motivation that's kind of universal and that the party might suspect is the desire for power. So I'm imagining a char character that's already wealthy that's come to this town. They're clearly wanting to be in charge of some things in the party community. Uh. And it's probably pretty likely that they want to create a power vacuum and fill it. Ooh, I'm kind of digging this. Right? Makes sense. I, I could come to that conclusion pretty easily as a party member. Yeah, why wouldn't you want, like, let's get rid of these dumb monks. I <laughs> yeah. should lead this place. <laughs> exactly. I can do a lot more for this town than these boring old monks. Yes. The golden opportunity to change this town into less of a chaotic free-for-all <laughs> and more of a destination. I, I could see somebody getting behind that plan. Well, I think we have all of our core elements to start fleshing out this this actual adventure, like the story beats of it, the details of it. Well, and now that we know what the villain's actually after, and we have some sense of who this person is, we've made them slightly and maybe most disturbingly kind of empathetic. Like, you can understand at least why they got here. Yeah. Satisfying that need of... You know, writing your antagonist as a person who sees themselves as justified in what they're doing, who sees the vision for the future that is somehow like disturbingly understandable. You're like, <laughs> yeah. okay, I can see what you were going for. Just don't do it like that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, you know, we've taken all of these little pieces of inspiration. And I think with all of those three together, We've got a vision in our head for how this person behaves and how they'll regard the party when the big the big event kicks off. If we capture this really well, we can engage with each party member. Like when one player at the table wants to start role playing with this villain, you've got all this stuff to pull on. Right. There's so much here that we can have a lot of fun with. But you know what? I really want to know what makes a great antagonist in your eyes as well. Hop into our Discord and let us know what was some of the better villains that you've ever created and what do you think made them work so well for your party specifically? Because this is the big kicker for us is that good GMs are telling stories for those players at the table. Yeah, there's no one perfect villain that's going to fill every party's needs. Right. It just isn't. It just doesn't happen that way. And granted, you can play a great game of D&D &D with a very simple villain. A lich that is evil because they're goddamn <laughs> evil. There's nothing that they can do about it. However, you know, I love reflecting stuff back, uh, you know, our own players' choices and trying to build it around our players. So, again, tell us. What came to mind when you were listening to this episode? How can we make this villain even more villainous? Patrons are welcomed and are helping us form this entire season. So if that appeals to you at all, 
you know, become a patron of the show and come let us know, like, what do you want to see happen in this season? I'd also say if you've got some, you know, half-baked villain concepts rolling around, throw them in the Discord and see if we can spruce them up a bit. Yeah. As always, the most genuine of thank yous to our patrons that make this podcast possible. And continue to do so with every single episode. We thank you so, so much for all of your continued support, especially Inigo the Brave, David P, Adam F, Alex R, Steve A, Sigma, Kaleidoscope, Skylar E, Deadman, Ninja Ducky, Sue Art, Blackthorn, First Law, Peacock Dreams, DM Thunderbum, Marley R, Time Warp, Dangerous Marmalade, Zach G, No Ma'am, Michelle T, Adlerius, Chris F, The Senate, Lucas D, Lila G, The GM Tim, Nevermore, Thomas W, DM Natsky, Heavy Arms, Leprechaun, and Will HP. For any of the resources or templates we mentioned in this episode, you can find them free at our website, hookandchance.com. There was a slew of them from the NPC creator that we have on our, uh, what is it? The uh, Notion, our Notion template. We have an NPC Notion template to mystery templates to story templates. To <laughs> NP- uh, anyways, there's many on there. Go check them out. We really appreciate it if you know anyone that would benefit from hearing an episode like this. If you share it with them, send it their way. Shoot that content over to them. Any one of those templates that you think might be helpful. Of course, the community of players and DMs on the Hook and Chance Discord is so helpful. And a great place to shop around ideas for making your villains more villainous. Tabletop Audio is the provider of all of the sound effects you heard in this episode. Thanks to them as always. Thanks Thanks for for listening. listening And and I'm going to push Travis in the pool. (laughs) It'll be fun. No downside. (laughs) 